Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a challenge as Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner discovered. She needed to hire a game artist for her education tech company. She went to ZipRecruiter.com, posted her job, found the right person in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, SeatGeek is the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, playoff games. We got playoff games coming up. We got baseball playoff games. We have the start of the NBA season. We have MLS playoffs coming up. I think I care about that. I enjoy going to the LAFC games. Uh, I've used SeatGeek many times, dating back to um, a historic pull-down of Great Hamilton tickets for my wife and daughter a few years ago. For $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code BS. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where Ryan Rosillo's podcast is in full swing. He did another Monday episode with Chris Long. They're so good. You love that one. I love it. It was great. There's like good friends. Yeah, it's good. It's I listened to it on the plane today as I fell in and out of consciousness because I was on an early plane today. Uh, You can listen to that. You can listen to The Hottest Take, our new podcast that debuted on Spotify this week. We've already had takes on Indiana Jones and fantasy football. I'm not going to spoil them for you, but you can go listen. But we will be having four a week on that spot. Rewatchables, Beverly Hills Cop went up. Yeah. Eddie's the all-time apex mountain that's ever happened for Eddie Murphy. Talked about that with Wesley Morris, Sean Fennessy, and Chris Ryan. That is up on the Rewatchables feed. The Rewatchables 1999 feed. We have four movies left. I think Never Been Kissed is this week, so you can subscribe on Luminary and that. We'll talk about that later. Coming up, my old friend Malcolm Gladwell. He's been on this podcast many times. We've done lots of things together, writing-wise, audio-wise, and he has a new book coming up. We're going to talk to him about it right now. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. They said Malcolm Gladwell would never write another book. He wrote another book. How many years for you? Six years. Six years? Between them. Yeah. I'm old. I can't make fun of you because my fingers don't even work anymore. I can barely send emails. People, there's a whole generation of people out there who don't realize you used to write. I know. I'm wasted talent. They think you're just just a talking head. It's terrible. I'm like the Andrew Luck of writing. I'm just hiking the Himalayas. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You don't miss it. I do miss it. But what I don't miss is you can't do the half-assed version of it. You Like when you yeah. did this book that you put together, I guarantee you didn't just work on it like once a week, like you were doing it. There's still a thing that happens to me. It's usually in airports. Somebody will come up to me and say, I loved those email exchanges you did with Simmons back in the day. And then they walk away. And I just feel like oh. someone stabbed me in the heart because like, I you, won't, too. you won't do them anymore. I'd do them. I never, I never said I would never do them. The last one we did was my favorite. I thought it was, I thought it was. I we mean, did I that mean, one for The Ringer. I did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. I do it to give me a heartbeat. Just invite me. You won't, but you're so busy, like, no, holding that's, force. I haven't written anything in, like, two years. Yeah. I get, je- now I just get jealous when other people write stuff, because I, I always feel like I had a kinship with the people who are writing less. And then you come out and you write this talking to strangers book. And one of the most complicated books you've written. Yeah. And it seems like you 
you started. Can you t- explain the thesis in one sentence? I don't want to go into like the, the morass of the book, but yeah, the thesis is that the strategies that we use to make sense of our friends are and work really well in that context work really badly when they are applied to strangers and that an enormous number of the controversies that we find ourselves in the, in the present day are about failed conversations between strangers. You meet the person, you don't understand who he, who he or she is. You're and, rattling this off with with the vigor of somebody who's done like 15 interviews already <laughs> in the last week. I've gotten really good. I've gotten really good that was at good, mixing though. it up. And, I, and what I've done is, because you know, you do this thing now where it's all, you back in the day when you were on book tour, you would give a talk. I would give a talk. Right. Now it's all Q&As. And so now the whole thing is you choose in each place you stop a different Q&A, a, a Q&A partner who will have a different conversation than a person before. So you want maximum diversity in your Q&A partner. And that way you don't get stale. So this is like a last three years kind of trend? Because I've noticed yeah. this, the same thing happened with Chuck when he just did his book. Yeah, it's all- He had his, he had his like little buddies in every city there or whoever, or somebody they hooked him up well, with. It dawned on people that the, the people, it dawned on the book publishing business that the people who show up for your book event are already going to read the book. So the last thing you need to do is to preview the book to them. They have it. Right. They're going to go home and read it. So you can, they just want to find out about you and like- Do they have you. to buy a book to get into the yes. thing? Yeah, so that's, yeah. so I was of the vestige, which was insane, of you would just go and you would sign everybody's book and it would be a long line well, and had, it was yeah. pre-selfies and it was just like, and I always felt bad because I didn't have, you know, if there's like hundreds of people on a line, you feel you, you got to keep it going. But I also was like, I wanted to talk to people, but you end up just head down saying hi. Your book came out so long ago. It's like- the it's 19th ten years century. ago. Is the nineteenth century? It's a. It's a completely. You. I mean, you have no. You have no more understanding of like. I don't. Of the book tour now. That it's kind of funny how long. I think I would like this version of it much more. Doing like the little Q and A in each city. Now yeah. you're making me want to write a book. And also, so there's all kinds of things. That Should change. I get a ghostwriter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> imitates my style. <laughs> um, well, an update of I've said for years that an update of the book of basketball. I mean, it's unbelievable you haven't done that. Like, I don't understand. It's not going to be, you've done all the hard work. You just need to revisit the top 100. You could it, it take a month off and like, right. And then you'd Maybe like, I'm playing dumb and I'm doing this already. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> that, and because that maybe was. I'm, maybe I've been roping doping people all along. <laughs> um, yeah, it has been 10 years. A lot has changed. Crazy uh, NBA decade. But so I, is it more fun to sell a book the way things are now? I would imagine it is. It must be like you're talking to, we're taping this on a Wednesday. You're talking to Larry Wilmore. We're taping on Tuesday. You're yeah. talking to Larry Wilmore tonight. And Riverside. Larry, last night was Britt Marling, the actress. The oh. night before, who's a friend of mine. The night before that was uh, a law professor at Harvard. The night before that was Sam Sanders, the hilarious NPR guy. The night before that was like a, was um, Brian Lair, who's like the opposite of Sam Sanders. Equally brilliant, yeah. but like, like an old Jewish guy curmudgeon. And so it's like, it's five completely different experiences. So Every, you pick the list. Yeah, you, you kind of, you try and mix it up as much as possible. So you're almost arranging it like a cocktail party where you, you're walking yeah. around the party talking to all different types yeah. of people. Like Brian Lair, I just made fun of Brian Lair for like being an old guy. And he was so hilariously down with that. And then- Last night was sort of super serious because, like, 
Brit is serious. I mean, she's a, you know, we talked about storytelling and, and then Larry, I don't know what Larry's going to be about tonight, but you know, with Larry, you can go in any number of, we could spend the entire night talking about the Lakers. Who knows? Right with him. It's very possible, <laughs> especially with this upcoming Lakers season. The, uh, the book, it's more of a psychology book than anything. Not that your other books haven't been, but it really dives into a lot. And I, every time I read a book like that, and you've mm-hmm. written a couple that definitely mm-hmm. dips into it in a big way. I always wonder why I just don't read psychology books because I love reading about human psychology. Yeah. And, I feel, and on the other hand, I feel like I'm pretty good at, sci- at sci- just like understanding the whole things. And maybe it's because I don't read books about it. Like, do you think it's one of those things where the more you read about it, it actually could screw you up your compass? Well, there's the problem with reading, with jumping to the kind of source material is that it's vast. Yeah. Like, it's just really, 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 really overwhelming. Like, you had um, David Epstein, right, on this, did you yeah. on the pod? like six weeks ago. And David, David is the guy who reads everything before he writes a book. So he does an insane, you know, to master the feel before he wrote Range. He, I don't, God knows how many, I mean, he must have spent like a year just reading. And I, I don't do that. I don't, I'm much more selective. But, it, but you have to have a sort of uh, an approach to this because the, you could literally just spend the rest of your life consuming the literature in these areas. I mean, it's just... Um, so your process is you start out with Sandra Brand kills herself in jail. Yeah. And I'm obsessed with that. So you're so you're just obsessed with it, not even thinking it's a book yet. You're just like, I want to know everything about this case. Well, like everyone... So she's the case of the woman, the young African-American woman who's pulled over by the side of the road in Texas. Cop gets into an argument with Four her. Four years ago. Four years ago. She gets arrested. She hangs herself in jail. And there is a, the whole, the whole thing is there's a dash cam video of their entire encounter. So it's one of the only, so of all of these high profile um, encounters between African-Americans and cops, it's really the only one where we have an absolute transcript. We know exactly, like they're still arguing about Ferguson, what happened with Michael Brown and Darren Wilson. With Sandra Bland, we know, and that's why it's so heartbreaking because you can see just how stupid and banal and idiotic the cop, the cop's encounter with her. I mean, it's just like, it should never have happened. It's the most kind of, um, and so I watched it like 20 times and became convinced that there was something both um, incredibly interesting and and interesting, it seems like a, a lame word in that context, but um, but also something powerfully typical about it. And I'd also read this book the right around the same time, I read a book by a criminologist in at Berkeley called Frank Zimmering, called Why Police Kill. And he was trying to figure out how many American civilians die at the hands of law enforcement in America every year. And his first thing is, it's really hard to figure that out. Believe it or not, we don't have numbers on that, which is in itself incredible. And then he figures out that it's about a thousand. And then he says, well, is that high or low relative to other countries? And the answer is, it's way, way high. Yeah. And then he says, well, how long has it been going on at that level? And the answer is a very, very long time. And then once you read that book, it's like, it's impossible not to be sort of um, angry. When did you come into the realization that a lot of what happened when she got stopped, the stuff with the cop, Mm -hmm. was about two people that were basically set up by all these other factors to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Because that's really what the book's about. Two people in the wrong place at the wrong time for reasons that really didn't have everything to do with them and then hitting all the same checkpoints 
that you're going to hit when you don't kind of know how to talk to each other. Yeah. Well, I got, I mean, the really, really, there's many, many, many questions that arise out of that traffic stop. The one I settle on as being the most significant is, why is he stopping her, right? So the first thing you do is you look at the cop. We have an exact record of his entire career as a police officer, every single police stop he ever made. And what you discover, first of all, is that he was stopping people all the time, constantly, for incredibly trivial infractions. So Sandra Bland is not some anomalous incident. It's his, it's what he did. Yeah. Right? And then the second thing is, okay, so why does he do that? And the answer is because he was trained to do that. And then once you sort of realize that fact, that he is not a rogue cop, he is in fact a paradigmatic cop. He's a cop acting precisely as the system wanted him to act. And that's when you make the leap and you realize, oh, you can't dismiss this. This is not simply a personal interaction gone awry. This is the result of a deliberate strategy of law enforcement, which was has been enacted without regard to the social cons- to its social consequences. And that's the last third quarter of the book is just about exploring that kind of how on earth did we end up with a with a law enforcement system in this country, idea, strategy, which which involves stopping innocent people and suspecting and engaging in wild fantasies about their potential wrongdoing. How much of the book can we step on? You want to leave some mystery? Yeah, I'll leave some mystery. Yeah. I mean, right. well, I was gonna say there's there was I mean, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I feel like I'm pretty well read. I, I didn't realize the volume of stops and how yeah, this a, was actually, you know, a strategy that started for not the greatest reason, but not a terrible reason. You lay that on the book. I won't say what yeah, chapter. Yeah. But then just kind of became everyone's strategy. It, w- it was yeah. almost like in sports where somebody's offense is succeeding for a specific reason. And everybody else was like, hey, that offense looks good, but it's terrible for them. Yeah. It's and just, This is the spread offense of law enforcement. Yeah. And it's just like ridiculous. Yeah. And the numbers yeah. don't back up at all. It making sense to do it this way. I mean, when you're stopping a thousand people and you're finding one gun and, you know, two pounds of Coke. You have to ask yourself, is it really worth alienating 998 people in order to find that's essentially what we're doing, right? We're stopping. You're institutionalizing fear yeah. and anger and all, all of these things that just don't need to, you at least don't need to do that. It's not worth it for what you get out of it. But uh, you also, in this book, tied in a whole bunch of things that I'm just interested in, like Amanda Knox and the Amanda Sandusky Knox. case. And- I've been emailing with Amanda Knox. Really? Yeah. That documentary was good. I like that one. It was very good. Yeah. Because she, for, we did this, what we call an enhanced audiobook. So we did our audiobook like a podcast. So all historical archival tape, whenever I interview someone, you hear that, you hear them, not me reading them. It's a completely different experience. We have, we got a song from Janelle Monae. That's a theme song um, that runs throughout. Anyway, I wanted to use some of Amanda Knox's own audio, like, from her audiobook in my thing. So I had to ask permission. So we get in touch with Amanda and I start emailing with her. It's like super, I was like, this is sort of interesting, like kind of, and she turns out of course to be incredibly thoughtful, um, interesting kind of person. But the notion is one of those. So I, I, I divide all of these crazy public controversies into two very kind of broad groups. There is the one, there are the ones that stand up to the test of time. So 10 years later, when you look back on Controversy X, does it still seem like a legit controversy? Right. And then the other category are the ones like, 
you just have, you cannot understand what in God's name right. were we thinking? Amanda Knox is the f- latter category. It's like, in retrospect, it makes no sense. It's crazy that millions of people around the world were convinced that this kind of, you know, Seattle, middle-class, slightly awkward Seattle girl who goes, who's been in Italy for three weeks on her, like, year abroad. She was, like, 20. Like, 20 years old, who's just, like, I mean, she's a little bit quirky, interested. We somehow convinced ourselves that she was this murderous femme fatale who was, like, roping in her roommate and her boyfriend and some random, like, drifter who comes in off the street into some thing that ends in a bloody massacre. Like, it's just, it just is crazy. It's like OJ is one of those things too, of course. OJ is the paradigmatic. It's crazy 10 years later. Whereas, uh, what's one that stands up really well? Uh, well, you know, um, Jean Benet Ramsey. It's not like we've resolved it or we now think, why did we get, I mean, it's still a kind of grand mystery that kind of commands our attention. The OJ case had two things that we didn't know enough about in 94 yeah. and 95. One was just the domestic violence pieces of it, which everybody yeah. just kind of blew off. Yeah. You know, he, there was this mindset of, oh, well, you can't judge. We weren't there. And, you know, people, the mm-hmm. way they thought about it, it wasn't a red flag. Like okay, it became so post-OJ. I never thought about this. In the Me Too era, the presumption of OJ's guilt is so much stronger because they play the tape, the 9-11 tape. It's, it's stronger post-OJ because that was... Yeah. That was the one that shone yeah. the light on this whole thing. And it's, and she's, the worst one was when she calls, and this is a, after a couple of times the police mm-hmm. had come mm-hmm. and she's just like t- completely defeated. And she's yeah. like, it's Nicole Brown Simpson. You've been here. Yeah. It's yeah. about OJ. He's going to kill me. Like, hey, she's not even like scared. It's like, she's just convinced she's going to die. I think people heard that and it made them mm-hmm. completely flip the flip how they thought about this stuff. The other thing was DNA. And we just didn't understand that in 1994 and 95. Yeah, and even yeah. like, well, I you think, think younger people understood it, but I I think older people were like, well, you know, they could just leak the blood and they just didn't get it. I, are you, you, so you think that the, the switch was flipped on our kind of um, understanding and appreciation of how serious domestic abuse is. You think it's flipped by OJ? I think right around then. I think that was. I think it's later. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe OJ's the beginning. I think OJ, and this is why one of the reasons why Ezra's documentary about mm-hmm. him was so great. It it's this tipping point of like nine different things. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like just life is different after this happens in this spot and this spot and yeah. this spot and this spot. And even the concept you talk in the book about people's perception versus what the reality is, and they see what they want to see. And a big piece of this OJ thing was, oh, he couldn't have done that. He's OJ. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we, 10 years ago, I, remember, we, I think we did a back and forth on this where we were talking about like who would, who would the most surprising person be like right now mm-hmm. as surprising as OJ was in 94. And it was basically like Barkley. Be like, if all of a sudden Barkley just murdered somebody. And we're like, nah, Charles would never do that. That yeah. was how we felt about OJ about in OJ. the mid 90s. I was like, yeah. oh, he's no way. Yeah. Stop yeah. it. Also, the question that would be asked today about OJ is, whether he had, had CTE. CTE, all that stuff, yeah. Immediately. Or whether it was, the other thing was whether, I mean, his behavior also looks a lot like roid rage. Yeah. It's right. either CTE or, like, I always feel like with Aaron Hernandez, I know here we are talking once again about the Patriots, but 
Um, Definitely. We, we've disowned Aaron Hernandez. <laughs> we never won a Super Bowl with him. It doesn't count. The discovery that Aaron Hernandez had the CTE of, I mean, didn't, it wasn't like some insanely advanced case of CTE. I feel like I actually watched Steve, I watched Stephen A on ESPN talk about this. And he was like saying, don't use that as a, he was like, he didn't want to, he didn't want to incorporate that fact into his understanding of Aaron Hernandez. And I thought, you know what? That's a big mistake. I think you have to. It doesn't let him off the hook, but it does say that this is like a, and I, 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 this is actually a kind of a way of thinking about problems that I like a lot, in, that I use them in this book, particularly when I talk about the Stanford rape case. When just because you bring in a, uh, uh, an outside consideration that affects behavior does not mean you are letting the perpetrator off the hook so to say, I have this chapter on Stanford rape case, which is all about alcohol. What does alcohol do? How Brock does it Turner feed into the about. yeah Brock Turner case? How does it? How does alcohol drunkenness contribute to sexual assault? And a lot of people, their first impulse is, oh, you're by by saying alcohol contributes heavily, you're trying to let Brock Turner off the hook. Wrong, hundred percent wrong. In fact, it greatly clarifies his responsibility for his own behavior. So he's not just responsible for his behavior towards women. He is also responsible for the things he puts inside his body. So we've now told him, dude, you're 18. There are two things you need to worry about. One, do not act like a criminal towards women. Two, don't ingest substances at such a rate that turn you into a criminal, right? right. It is, Or that you a, can't control even what you're doing walking straight. Walking. And Any with, decision you're making, you can't control. And it. with football and CTE, it's the same thing. Applies. Well, I've noticed with the Antonio Brown thing in the last couple of weeks, the way people have talked about him. And you saw a little bit with Andrew Luck, too, who I joked about at the beginning of this, where, you know, I think that people have been hesitant with Brown because they don't know if there's something wrong with him. Yeah. You know, and I, I think if this had been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it just would have been like, that guy's a lunatic. But mm -hmm. He's taking his crazy pills again, and he would have been like a character. Yeah. And I, I think this has happened— in a lot of different parts of sports and culture, like even something like um, like child actors, mm -hmm. you know, and you think like in the late 80s, early 90s, which was really when child actors started, grown-up child actors were fucking up left and right. People like Howard Stern and Center Live, they really started making fun of mm -hmm. those people like Danny Bonaducci. And, mm -hmm. and it just became a funny thing. Now I don't feel like we would do that. I think, yeah. and I think Twitter has a big part of that and the internet and people are just a, a lot more uh, feeling these days, but um, I do think people consider a greater range of factors. So yeah, yeah. that's a good thing. And there's other bad things that come with that too, but I think that's ultimately a good thing is that at least we give people a little more of a benefit of the doubt from the mental health side. Yeah. And the yeah. CT thing's a great example. Yeah. No, the, we the, don't know. Antonio Brown, might, he might've had like eight concussions. We don't know if he didn't tell us, yeah. you know, Gronkowski, did you see some of his quotes? Well, he said he had like 20 concussions and he's blackout concussions five times. Like, who knows if he's exaggerating? But, I mean, I remember watching Patriots games and thinking he'd been concussed at least four or five times. Yeah, Kyle, right? Oh, no doubt. I wouldn't be surprised by any number. I mean, Edelman got concussed in the Super Bowl and they're coming back against Seattle. Yeah. And stayed yeah. in the game and caught the game-winning touchdown. So God only knows. Oh, man, it's so, yeah. I mean, and not even, we haven't even talked about how many concussions Brady's had just by virtue of being on the field for that long. It's just made him more handsome. <laughs> Make his hair grow.
<laughs> Turns out that's a side effect. It's a huge man ahead right now. We made hair. The WWE, the worst. Everyone talks about dead wrestlers and mm. crimes with WWE. They had one thing happen that was so terrible that it's kind of been. It's a, it was almost too horrible. It was Chris Benoit, uh-huh. where he killed his basically his family oh, himself. I remember that. Yeah, and it, it, they said his brain was like not even recognizable. Yeah, and he he there was just so much damage, and he was you know, wrestling in the height of the chair shot era where for four or five years, it was like a big thing hitting people over the head with chairs and these guys were like getting dizzy and then they're going to the next city and doing it again. And he just, his brain was just mush. There's a guy who I interviewed for my book. I have a a chapter of the book on, the chapter member on on torture when I sit down with the CIA guy who did all the waterboarding. And then I had sit down with this other guy who studies what happens to people when they've been traumatized. And that second guy, super, super interesting. And his, his, one of the things he told me, and it's not, not something I went into in the book, he was saying the thing that's fascinating about PTSD is you could have two soldiers who go through exactly the same experience, exactly the same. One guy will emerge 100% healthy and one guy will have suffered from profound PTSD. And there's no obvious reason why. In other words, it's not that one guy is from a good background and healthy and the other guy is drug using and you, they are objectively indistinguishable. Yeah. And then something about the way one person processes that, um, that experience proves to be, um, highly pathological and the other guy's fine. And he was sort of the, the question he was trying to answer was, can we distinguish between those two people before they go into battle? But what's really interesting about that is then, then you, you have a situation where in order to be a soldier, you would be screened for this and we would have this weird thing where they would say to you, you know, Bill, you're one of those people who's not going to get PTSD. You're a grunt. You're on the front lines. And then Malcolm, you are. You're going to work in the commissary yeah. back in the base and be totally. Now, the same thing is, of course, going to happen in football because the same is true. There are some people who get multiple concussions and they're fine. And there are others who develop profound CTE. We don't we have vague reasons to understand what distinguishes between these two, but it's very clear that someone like Aaron Hernandez has this profound susceptibility to that, had that profound susceptibility, and he was off the rails by 22, right? Right. And there, it's quite possible that, you know, Gronk could live to be 95 and, yeah. you know, could be, um, you know, could be a brain surgeon and like, you know, go back to school. I mean, it's just, there's no, so there's, we're, we're probably a generation away from people screening your kids and saying, I think this is, by the way, the only way football survives, is that in the early teenage years, they start aggressively screening kids and saying, okay, this kid, you don't have any of the susceptibilities to concussion, you can play and you can't. And that's going to be like a really interesting, and what if the percentage of kids who have the susceptibility, susceptibility is 70% of the football playing, or what if it's 5%, right? It's well, and a huge then, difference in outcomes. And soccer, lacrosse, and hockey, too. Yeah, you will do it for, you know, and the only the sport that will, the only sport that will flourish is running, of course, my favorite sport, because everyone's going to have to run cross-country. All the people who get kicked off the soccer It's team. going to be the last one left. <laughs> it's going to be the only, it's going to be fantastic. I think about the <laughs> concussion stuff constantly, because my daughter is now five foot eight, and she's uh, playing striker. And there's corner kicks or crosses. And yeah. this one of the things she's good at is going up in the air and trying to get a header. And if you watch soccer games, yeah, a lot of times, you know, you go up for a header, somebody else does, you you 
crash heads or you you hit the goalie. Um, but not only that, it's a. I had somebody when I did that story years ago explain this to me, that it's really really crucial that your neck muscles be strong, right, and that your head be fixed at the. So she's good at that. So okay. that's good. That's but good. It, but yeah. if she hits head to head with somebody, it doesn't matter. And yeah. it's it's been interesting because obviously watching her the last ten years and your little kids running around in a little, mm-hmm. little circle. But now she's like grown woman and a goalie's running out. Mm-hmm. And somebody else is running in, and they and they collide, and the the danger's going up. And then you start thinking as a parent, like, am I doing the right thing here? Yeah. Like, yeah. isn't it my job to protect my kids? Yeah. My kid loves playing whatever. My son's playing. He's on the seventh grade team in sixth grade playing running back, but it's flag. Yeah. But he's gonna want to play with the pads in a couple of years. Sal mean? let his kids do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm at to decide, like, all right, do you try it? And you, yeah. the, like, Sal's whole thing is, like, if I'm you get sure. one concussion, you're done. You're using Sal as a role model here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, like, the first time in history. I was on Kimmel last night, and I was, like, saying, is Sal here? Because I, I never met him. Yeah. So it's like, is Sal here? I'm like, no, 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 Sal here. And then, like, these random people come up and just start telling me Sal's stories. Because. I mean, it was like. <laughs> it's a legend. So yeah. This, like, yeah, yeah, I don't think you should be taking life advice from this yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> gambling advice, perhaps. But. No, I'd rather take life advice than gambling, gambling advice from the cuz. By the way, speaking of gambling, someone told me the following, gam- the following gambling story involving uh, Lee Trevino. Okay. Who I guess is one of the 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 all-time great um, uh, 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 hustlers. Right? Yeah. Grew up on public, you know, golf courses. So he's in a golf, Tommy, correct me if I get the story wrong. He's, Trevino's like years ago. At Trevino's in his height. He's in a golf uh, clubhouse in Minneapolis. And the the uh, the clubhouse is right on the a par four, right? It's just next to the green. Um, next to the to the uh, tee. And so he's in he's in a table in the middle of the uh, of the golf of the clubhouse. So he turns to the group. Like all these gamblers have gathered because they know yeah. he's a notorious gambler. He says, okay. You know, each you chip in, let's get $50,000 on the table. What I'm going to do, it's a par four. I'm going to use a putter, and I'm going to drive from the middle of the golf club. Open the windows. I'm going to start right here in the middle of the room, and I'm going to make par. And if I don't, I'll pay you 50 grand if you do. And he makes par. And then he goes, okay, double or nothing. And here's the double double or nothing. On the next hole, I'm going to make par, but we're going to... We're going to start by putting the golf club, the golf uh, ball inside a plastic cup. Was, I'm going to tee off with the ball inside a plastic cup, and I'm going to make par. And they're like, double or nothing. They're like, we're all in. What does he do? Takes their money. How hilarious is that? My God, you made it's Jesus. It's fantastic. I always How, thought he'd be a good documentary. Oh, my God. He'd be fantastic. He's you like, know- all those guys— those public course guys yeah. are so much more interesting. It's why the the Williams sisters, it's all anyone who's like comes up some orthodox way is going to be infinitely more interesting and more resilient, by the way, than than the kind of metronomic um private course guys. That's why I like uh the Canadian who won the US Open, your brethren. Ooh. What was her name? Monica? Now I'm blanking. Oh, 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 her. Yes, yes, yes. With the with like the um the Eastern European, like Slavic last name or Ukrainian last yeah. name. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was <laughs> she was old school. Andrisek, something. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just call her the Canadian. <laughs> I loved her though because she she was kind of yeah. old school and really super competitive and didn't seem like she came off an assembly line like all these other tennis players. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, intuition and some other stuff. But let's sure. take a break. Let's take a break to talk about Square. You know Square. They make that little white square reader that helps businesses around your neighborhood take payments. Running and growing business, it takes so much more than payments. That's why Square built so many more tools that can help. Point of sale software for restaurants, retail businesses, and salons. Invoices you can send right from your phone. Easy to build websites to help you sell online. Access to business loans to help you increase your cash flow, purchase new equipment, or whatever it is you need to do to grow your business. They'll do that too. Their payments are still the best in business. I've been using it for years. Every time I get a haircut, super easy. No complicated contracts. Weird fees, you always get your money fast, even instantly. And since Square makes all these tools, they're all built to work together. So whether you sell stuff on Instagram or a website, whether you own a restaurant or a retail boutique, whether your nephew Kyle trying to produce podcasts on the street on Melrose for for he street pulls pod. out a square, is like, does anyone do a street pod with me? Square has tools for you. See all the ways Square can take your business from square one to whatever's next at square.com slash go slash BS. Square.com slash go slash BS. And since we're here, let's talk about CBS Sports HQ, the brand new streaming sports news network. Live 24-7, costs you nothing. Sports coverage that's always on, always free, always. Coverage always focused on the game. Tons of highlights, breaking news coverage as it happens. Fantasy advice and something we care about deeply here at the BS Podcast. Gambling picks and analysis to get that extra edge. There's a reason I'm over half a million dollars up, Kyle. What is it, Bill? Million dollar picks. I'm up over a half million. One of the reasons, CBS Sports HQ, I can confirm, not easy. Gambling, no. I've had, I've struggled over the years, but when I turn on CBS Sports HQ, I'll see the tips and trends I need to win my bets. Download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Apple TV, Roku, Fire TV, any other connected device at any time to watch CBS Sports HQ. No fake debates, just sports for real sports fans at the great price of, it's completely free. Yeah. No login, no sign up, nothing. Download the CBS Sports app. Watch CBS Sports HQ today. Back to Gladwell. Intuition's a big part of your book. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking, you didn't put this in there, but I you could kind of read between the lines with it. I think all of us have watched so many TVs and movies that we've been conditioned to think certain people act certain ways, especially like those Law & Order and CSI type yeah. shows. And it's like, you go to see the person and, whoever's playing the possible suspect has like four moves basically. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to guess what those four moves. Yeah. And as you point out with like the Amanda Knox thing, she, she fit the profile. If it was the law and order episode of like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I bet she did it. Mm -hmm. I bet she's the one, which is how the Italian police actually acted. Yeah. No, no, she did it. She did it. I'm using my intuition here. And they just convinced themselves Mm-hmm. that they did it. But how much do you think like pop culture plays with huge, all this? It's got it, right? So I do this thing in the book where <clears throat> I take an episode of Friends and I had, you know, there's, there are these psychologists who are experts in what's called facts, which is the a, uh, a, uh, a notation system for identifying and registering all of the expressions that your face can make. So they've, quite, there's like, I forgot what the number is, a hundred expressions your face can make and they've got a number for each one. So they can look at what you do with facts is you look at a two-minute stretch of, of friends, and you can notate every expression that goes across the face of the So if your brow furrows, it's like yeah. F2. 
Action unit one is where the inner part of your eyebrow goes up, which is what you, which is a sign of distress. Yeah. Right? So that's called AU1. And then- So do you have to memorize all these little codes for each face thing? It takes like two years to master facts. It's like really, really hard to do. Yeah. But I found a facts person and I sent her two minutes of a friend's episode. And I said, do a facts analysis of every expression made by the people on Friends. And then I, and then we went through it together and we said, okay, um, does eat, does the expression on their face match their internal emotional state? So if Joey, there's a scene where Joey is angry, does face, does his face show anger according yep. to the classic? And in absolutely every instance, the facial expressions of the actors perfectly match their internal emotional states, which is why you can watch an insanely complicated episode of Friends with the sound off and know what happened. Yep. You don't need to know. You know that Monica is upset and you know that Ross is perplexed and that Joey is dumb because their faces perfectly show the thing. If you watch a lot of Friends and a lot of TV where actors who are trained in this, what's called transparency, they are trained to perfectly represent their emotional states on their faces. You think that that's the way the world works. But in fact, that's not the way the world works. If I were to reach across the table right now and punch you in the face, right, which would be both surprising and then angering for you. I'd, I'd use a safe word, probably. You would use a... You, <laughs> would, uh, you would think your face would show surprise and then anger, right? Yeah. Probably, probably wouldn't. You probably... Your face might not show anything at all. I would think you would explain why you did it. I think it was part of the podcast. <laughs> this is a test. Tommy and I have cooked this up. <laughs> you know, you the friend, the friends. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. So I mean, that's one of the many ways in which you know what's a great example of this is. Kawhi is drafted by the by Seattle. No, not Seattle is considering drafting Kawhi. Right? They bring him into the room, and I forgot who the GM was at the time of Seattle. Just before they moved to OKC to Oklahoma, and they bring Kawhi in, and Kawhi is sweating through his suit, and the GM is quoted. Do you know the story? No. The GM is a fantastic story. 2000, they weren't in Seattle anymore in 2011. I thought, that, wait a second, whoever it was. It was OKC? Maybe it was OKC. Yeah, maybe whoever it was. There was a team that could have had Kawhi yeah. that was high in the draft, and they interview him, and he's sweating through his suit, and the GM says at the time, we don't want him because we want someone who's cool under pressure. Right. Of course. And Kawhi has like no heartbeat. He's, He's got no nobody's heartbeat. Nobody's cooler than so Kawhi. What that guy was doing was he was making an a, what's called a transparency assumption. He was assuming that if Kawhi is showing signs of nervousness, what I consider to be signs of nervousness in my presence, then he's nervous. And not only that, that that represents a kind of stable trait of his. Now, Kawhi could have been hot. The suit could have been ill-fitting. Or he could have been nervous, but maybe Kawhi is the kind of guy who's only nervous when he's talking to a middle-aged white guy on the day before the draft, right? right? So it's like, that's a classic mistake we make is like we jump to all kinds of conclusions based on some. So the real lesson of that is there's a million, you know, hours of tape of Kawhi playing basketball. You don't have to meet the man. Don't meet him. Well, what's, you wrote Blink. Yeah. Which is like the cousin of this, maybe even the brother. Blink yeah. is like first three seconds, you come first, up with your thing. This is like now I'm spending time with this person and and that's almost screwing me up. It's you're almost better with the blink thing. And blink is like a great way with with basketball, I'm in or out within ten seconds. Yeah. Well there's <laughs> a, sometimes I'll look at somebody's body and I'm like, I'm out. Well, there's a so there's a difference. There are certain kinds of things that I think are you can pick up in that for particularly if you're an expert. 
you can get the gestalt of somebody very quickly. Yeah. But I'm talking about much more. Yeah, this is the nuanced cousin of it. Yeah, emotional. Like your famous thing about, um, that you've said on a number of occasions um, about uh, Greg Oden, that you just have watched the The way he walked. Yeah. And you just realized he can't play. Bynum was like that too. Yeah. Saw Bynum. I was like, the guy's 23. He's running like that already? That's not good. Yeah. I worry about Jokic with this, by the way. Really? Yeah, I, I think he runs heavy. I think he has a lot of weight. Yeah, because well, I love watching him. My fear with him, there's some number where if the if NBA players get over a certain weight, it yeah. starts to get a little dicier. Well, there like is, if it's like is 260 it, pounds, something like that. Isn't there a Sabonis? Sabonis the elder. Yeah, who was a very similar body type. No, to he's Jokic. Sabonis. He's, the other one is just his son. Sabonis yeah. gets to be Sabonis. He Sabonis doesn't get is, to be the older Sabonis. The, but he he had like all those millions of surgeries. Yeah. He ended his career still as a very good player, but just never moved. Well, no, but if you saw the clips <laughs> in the 80s, he's, yeah. you know, looks like... Oh, he was incredible. He looks like David Robinson. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The transparency thing, I mm-hmm. was, thought it was interesting with the Friends, because I pictured you watching all, t- all 20 seasons of Friends trying to find the perfect two minutes. But then I realized, no, he's way too smart. He probably picked I, three episodes. I have watched a lot of Friends in my life. No, I, but I mean I when you're actually researching the oh, book. I yeah, I, I did actually enjoy it. Was an, it was enjoyable to come up with a good, what but, you wanted is a stretch of a particularly difficult. What's funny about Friends is the plots are so insanely complicated, and yet we they're transparent. Well, I mean, Friends was a, was a son slash daughter of, the sitcoms that I grew up with in the seventies, like Three's Company, was the ultimate one, where it's like misunderstanding. Yeah, I saw you with with that girl at the bar. Oh, wait a second, that's your sister. But it looked like your arm was around her. I'm mad. Oh, and then at the end, it all turns out. Yeah, massive. and they they just friends took that to another level. But we were talking about with the transparency of the actors. That's one of the reasons. In my opinion, none of them were able to translate into like massive movie stars. Aniston probably came the closest, the closest but yeah. it's not like Aniston was, you know, getting nominated for various Academy Awards or things like that. It was yeah. because they were so big on that show and they had mm-hmm. to, there was a lot of eye bulging and mugging and exaggerated whatever. And it's, it's just tougher to do that in yeah. movies. Yeah. That's why Jennifer Aniston, she's had the most success in like Sandler movies, yeah. you know, where she... Because those Sandler yeah. movies are kind of just like that. They're like extended friends universes. But yeah. yeah. Um, what, what's so, interesting? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, sometimes I watch, because I'm always fascinated by studio shows, especially because I've been on one. Um, if you mute a studio show, you can learn everything about the show without hearing what they're mm-hmm. talking about. By mm-hmm. the body language, um, how engaged people are. Yeah. Um, the looks on faces. Do they seem... And the reason I know this is because the second year I was on Countdown, which was not a happy second season, it was on in a bar and they were rerunning it. And it was, was like, or they were running a sports center segment we mm-hmm. did at like three in the morning, but I couldn't hear it. But I looked at us and my body language looked so bad. And I was like, oh no, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize I looked like that. I'm just like kind of standoffish. Wait, who I'm, we, who? I'm sinking. I don't want to say. You want to say. Uh, I'm sinking backwards yeah. and I look suspicious and just like I'm dying for the segment to be over. Yeah. And, well, this is my. And so that, I, that's a telling thing. My my body language critique in these situations is that what the, as a viewer, what you want is 
You want body language narrative over the course of the segment. So it's totally okay to start out uncomfortable as long as you end up comfortable. This is my, my although I think he is actually a performance genius. My yeah. issue with Stephen A is that he only has one gear. No, so, that's not true. You missed acoustic Stephen A in my podcast. <laughs> yeah. He I came on the pod. I no, I listened to that podcast. No, he didn't bring a band. It was just, it was him and his guitarist. He was, but he, <laughs> come on. He talked nonstop. It's a stripped down Stephen <laughs> A. It was like you Nirvana. Know, I've, there's never been a podcast you have ever done where you said less than in I loved Stephen it. Way. I love when somebody well, else yeah, does the work. Do it was great. You turned on the tape. I think you probably- just Nudged thought, him a couple directions. I thought you'd left for coffee in the middle. No, it was the easiest you, hour and a half I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> He's so epic. But what you want with, like, where is the voice modulation? Where, I want him in an emotional moment to get really quiet and soft and, and then rev back up. I want that kind of, I want the, So you know, I know he can do that because we would hang out at the finals on the big set yeah. that they constructed. And that's yeah. when we got to know each other, when everybody thought we hated each other. We actually yeah. liked each other, but he he can do it. We can do it. Yeah, he's he has mastered performance with opinion. He's fi figured out, he, he, it took him forever. Yeah, yeah. But he has figured out how to do it where there's like a little twinkle in his eye the whole time. You never take him 100% seriously, yeah. but he's put real thought and in, in analysis into And no one has worked saying. the accent better than, his accent is just fantastic. It's great. He's it's just fantastic. He's he's done an unbelievable job. Way, you just way, reminded me of speaking the NBA. By the way, West Indian. Hmm? I, I always have to bring this up, but Stephen A. I think one or both of his parents are Jamaicans, if I'm not wrong. Really? Of course. He makes so much sense as a West Indian. <laughs> totally does. <laughs> that should be your next book. <laughs> I have a Popovich quick rant I want to do. Yeah, I've been sure. thinking about Popovich. Yeah. I wanted to do some PTI. I was in PTI yesterday, but yeah. we, we did all football. I'm just annoyed by Popovich. The cult of Popovich. I cannot believe you're saying that. I know. This is, but this goes, ties into your book and perception uh -huh. versus reality yeah. and how people think versus actually putting thought in his stuff. Here would be a totally valid criticism of Popovich. I'm not saying I 100% believe this, but here's yeah. a totally valid criticism. Yeah. He's a fucking bully. He's a bully to sideline reporters. Doesn't need to be. Side Wait, that's your argument that he's mean to sideline reporters? I'm not reporters? done. Okay, all right. Bully to sideline yeah. reporters. Mm -hmm. um, he gets his ass kicked in Team USA and then goes on the offensive and is like, Anybody who who is complaining about how we did, like we don't need, he does this whole thing that just sounded like so lame. It's like, take some ownership. You guys finished seventh. We have all the best basketball players. Yeah, they weren't playing on that team. Yeah, but we still you had- did like seven podcasts. Did you see the team that won? I know, but did you see the team that won? It was Marc Gasol, Ricky Rubio, Rudy Fernandez, and Sergio Lowe. Yeah. And, that, and we had like, people were acting like we were sending, you know, yeah, Brian sure. Scalabrini out of the big three to play in the thing. And it's we like, the our players were really good. This should make you worry. You add up the salaries of all the players. Our players were 10 times more. We sent the Boston Celtics and they got their black cleaned. He picked the wrong team. Yeah. He did a bad job and takes some ownership. But no, no. He's like, anybody who criticizes us, like, wait, we don't want to hear it. Are you um, sure those guys were, if you're, if you're playing for Spain, you try. This is about motivation. Those guys are trying. Our team was motivated by the fear of being embarrassed. I, I think everyone was trying. They just got rattled because yeah. they hadn't, it was such a chemistry thing. But then with Popovich though, he's he has disdain for basically all the things that come with being a coach. Mm -hmm. 
But the two, the thing that it has flipped is the people around him really love him, which is great. Yeah. He does this whole thing. He takes everyone to dinners. He buys the wines and everybody says like, if you, if you knew him, you'd love him. Yeah. And that, that has now become the reputation. That's the prevailing reputation. It's like, well, what about the part when he's a big grunt, but a sore loser and all this stuff? We don't, so we don't get to criticize him for this anymore. Now it's like pop his hands off. Like right now, I'm sure somebody will put this on a fucking blog. Like Simmons rips pop. I'm not ripping pop. I'm just talking. There's like a double standard with him. He finished seventh in the world championships. If I had the record that pop had, I would, he's got, he's got the right. First of all, how old is he? 70. I'm sorry. Once you're past. Late sixties. No, he's 70 something. No, he's not that old. I I I just think it's like a pop love fest. What happened with Kawhi? Why did that not work out? Was that, whose fault was that ultimately? He lost a guy who just won the title on another team. It's just just nobody asks a question anymore with him. I think it's weird. Yeah. I think this cult of personality slash people kind of fall in the grain of a certain whatever because that's what everybody else thinks becomes ingrained. I think it's weird. You're not with me? He's the greatest coach of the last 25 years. Okay. But now, but now it's 2018. People pick Belichick apart. Belichick's a good counter, right? Yeah. They always talk about how bad Belichick is in press conferences. Make fun of him. They get super mad about him. But he's not a character like Popovich. There's not like a little twinkle in his eye, allegedly. He's just, he has no time for it. He's a jerk onto my... But then Belichick will have these press conferences where somebody will ask him a really interesting football question and he'll answer it for like three minutes. And it's fucking awesome. Yeah, he'll And it's up. like... Yeah, somebody would be like, hey, Bill, that the way you covered that punt in the second quarter in Miami, the way you used the gunner, what was that? Because I've never seen you do that. And his eyes will light up. He's like so happy. Yeah. And then he'll explain it. But I, here's what I understand. I understand why why do you need a great basketball coach to be good, good or excel at anything else? I, I'm just talking more about how somebody's character takes hold one way or the other. Yeah. Whereas with Popovich now, who's been a grump this whole decade publicly, basically, but now that's it's part of his shtick. Everybody's like, summer. "Oh no, he's great. We love him." He gave up his summer to coach a B team, an American B team. I don't think you can harsh on him. Everybody else was like on the beach. Pop is like. But do you think that it's blameless that they finished seventh? We're not allowed to wonder like what happened. What I'm upset about. Everyone is, got mad. I was like, "Don't, don't seventh place shame us." That was like the attitude. It's like, well, you guys did finish in seventh place. If the Canadians had put together a real team, we would have won, right? Yeah, you would have. Easy, easy. Jamal Murray and just a bunch of hockey players. I mean, like, and that that breaks my heart. We could have won. Even you're afraid to criticize Pop. This is what I'm talking about. Everyone's afraid of Pop. How did this happen? Where did we get here? This comes up in, you know, I had a chapter on Jerry Sandusky in my book, and I I, it's all about how I feel like the leadership of Penn State was totally outrageously attacked over this. I think yeah. they're blameless. But with Joe Paterno, Joe Paterno essentially did nothing wrong. He hears about the allegation, immediately tells his superiors. And the critique of Joe Paterno was essentially, why was a 75-year-old football coach not behaving towards a suspected pedophile with the savvy and insight of a, you know, uh, a psychiatrist. Right. Or a, like, he's a football coach. He doesn't even know what the words, there was this hilarious, hilarious, there's this moment in, I think one of the trial transcripts where someone asked, well, does, did you use, when you went to, when they asked Mc, the quarterback who goes to Paterno, McCreary, the former quarterback, goes to maturity to tell him this allegation, did you use the word sodomy? He's like, no, I didn't use the word sodomy. And then there's a sort of thing, I think, 
where they're wondering whether Paterno actually knew what the word sodomy was. Right. He doesn't. He has he's been thinking football 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for 60 years. He is not going to be alert to the darkness inside the heart of one of his former coaches, right? You can't ask him to do that. That's why you have mental health professionals or fit trained psychologists in the world to handle those kind of problems. And we do this thing sometimes when a crisis happens, we suddenly expect our leaders to be skilled at absolutely every job under the sun. Well, you, you covered this really nicely in the book about the, the spy from Cuba oh, yeah, yeah. and 40 signs that this was a spy and they just Everybody. botch it. They have her dead to right at one point. They miss yeah. it because they see what they want to see. Yeah. Much like people think Pop did a good job at the world championships. <laughs> um, You're not letting this go. No, it's, I'm <clears> just, I'm having fun with it because I'm, I'm going to enjoy the blog post tomorrow when somebody gets mad because God forbid somebody criticizes Pop. Yeah, the aggregators are going to come for me. That'd be a good, that'd be a good horror movie. The aggregators <laughs> new from Blumhouse. Um, this, in this book, mm-hmm. I love spy stuff. And yeah. I realized like my dad is like a big, he's going to like Martha's Vineyard for the weekend. And he goes to the bookstore and it's like, whatever has a red cover with like a Russian symbol on I'm it. He's guy. like, I'm in. I'm that guy. Oh, I, is that Cuba? Is that, is that the Island of Cuba and a red cover? I'm in. Yeah. Um, I have all those. And I've never been that guy, but I kind of feel like at some point in my life, I'm going to be that guy where I just oh, start plowing through those books. I have read, I mean, literally hundreds of those. If it has the word spy in the title, I own it. I have a whole section of my library at home, which is just nothing but spy spy books. And there's spy stories I didn't put in. I mean, if I had my way, I would have written the whole so thing. So that may be spy. your next one. It's just spies. <clears throat> I mean, What's crazy is Cuba had like the upper hand with the CIA. Really <laughs> it was like, really they were spy. like the small market hoops team just battling the Knicks and Lakers yeah. and, and beating yeah. us. First class spies. It, 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 it's true, actually. Double agents. An interesting thing about, in general, about spy stories is that small countries always have so East Germany played West Germany like, I mean, they routed them in the spy game. Cuba has bested the United States over and over again. Um, Israel massively um, uh, outplayed its larger Arab neighbors. In the, right. Uh, it's always the case that there are these. That so you think we need more funding with spies? We got to tell Trump. <clears throat> well, He's the, got this. The spy thing, my conclusion is since we're so pathetic at funding them, and why bother at all? Like, why don't you just give up? Just give up completely. No, spy, spy. Shut point. down the spy division. There was a paper I read by this former CIA guy who said the spy game, the espionage game between the Soviet Union and the United States over the course of the Cold War ended up as a wash. By the end, we knew all their secrets and they knew our, all our secrets because each of us had uh, spies from the other side high up in our defense intelligence right. that gave everything away. So he's like, at a certain point, you have to say, well, why don't you shut down all of the espionage operations? Because you're no further ahead. Just like, give it up. Use the money for something else. I mean, the only thing the CIA ever pulled off was killing JFK. <laughs> That's the only thing I can remember them doing successfully. And they murdered a president. I, wa- I watched one of those, uh, uh, the podcast, I forgot what it was uh, The called. aggregators are coming for me again. <laughs> Simmons says CIA killed JFK. There was an RFK podcast it's last on summer. on Which... We're purported to be a podcast about how all the conspiracy talk about RFK's death was nonsense that had the effect of completely radicalizing me and thinking that there was a huge conspiracy about RFK. It did, did seem like there was a did second shooter. No, I've, I've done the RFK deep dive. Uh, that's like, I was I bought all the books. I went down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And I was like, I'm more convinced of the RFK stuff 
than the JFK stuff. Well, JFK, there's nothing to be convinced of. There was a second gunman who <laughs> shot him, killed him with a shot to the head from a different direction. What, I, what else do we need? In a, in a back and forth, they doctored we, the Sapruder film. In a back and forth we did once, I mentioned my favorite theory, which is the, the fact that it, JFK was shot accidentally by a Secret Service guy who's in the car behind. Yeah. He panicked, and that was the second gunman. And I love that one. I love that one That's too. a great theory. I don't believe it, but it's a great one. And uh, and I had not thought, I sort of tossed it out, didn't think about it. Years later, I'm sort of Googling around and I run across a whole, in all of the crazy JFK shooting website paranoia thing, a huge segment of that is devoted to how, I can't believe Gladwell back. Like apparently that's like the least credible it's like yeah. It's like it's what it's the beginner's error. It's but like, that's Bill James was the was a big proponent of that there. That. I thought James James's book on um on his crime book is so completely fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's like, good. He does a good job with the, that whole The man is genius. I go on the the only Reddit page I go to. Yeah. And this is the God's honest truth, other than I have Celtics, Patriots, Red Sox, Reddit pages mm-hmm. and conspiracy. Oh, you go on that. That's, I, I go every day. Bill. I always, Conspiracy Bill loves the Reddit conspiracy page. It's completely <laughs> crazy. But they they were, they've been on this Epstein thing from like day one. And as the Epstein thing unfolded over the last yeah. few months, it was it was like a victory lap for them. Oh, really? They really felt like finally, we're, finally we hit one of these, you know. Wait, and, what and were they saying from day one? They were just like, from the, from the moment... I mean, he did go to jail in 2007, but the, yeah. when the Miami New, I think it was the Miami New Times, they did that oh, jo- huge the, long piece like a year ago. The fix was in on his ad- initial in his initial sentence. That 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 fix yes. was in, but then when the Miami paper yeah. broke all the stuff that actually happened, and you know, the, if you go into the deep internet, they feel like there's this whole rich people, yeah, rich people, and yeah, you know, underage girls all over the place, and. Eyes Wide Shut's a parable for all these different things that happen. And and somebody probably has an island. And then yeah. it turns out this guy actually had an island. They have, they have. When you have the island, it's a problem. And That's the island like the that nobody's been able to flag. really see. It's a red flag when you have the island. You're like, Island Why? with weird shit and weird <laughs> pictures. And that story is fucking bonkers. That was like the worst story in 10 years. Yeah, it was bad. And I, I actually feel like it didn't get enough attention, weirdly. Especially the part where... Oh, he managed to kill himself in jail as the two cameras just happened to be malfunctioning at the same time. And the two guards were sleeping because they had been overworked. And it, and it just kind of came and went. It was like, what is going on? And now people think he's still alive. Really? They think they took a different body out. That That's where I'm off. I'm, yeah. I'm in on all the other stuff. but Yeah, yeah the whole fake your own death thing. Yeah, the conspiracy <clears throat> thing, which has gone sideways in a lot of horrible ways this decade, and I think is... Mm-hmm. One of the ways we're going to remember all the bad things that happened this decade. I still I still enjoy some of the old school ones, like the JFK era. Yeah. I, I like when that like kicks First back up. First gen conspiracy. Yeah. I thought that was going to be Trump's only positive thing he did this entire presidency was unleash all the JFK files. Just be like, I'm finding out. <laughs> JFK, UFOs. I'm like, all right, well, at least, we, at least he did this. It's like, no, he, he couldn't even do that. Let's uh, take one more break. Let's take one more break to talk about DoorDash, an app I just used about five days ago. It's dinner time. Your stomach's rumbling. You still don't know what you're going to eat tonight. I know that sounds familiar. With DoorDash, you don't need to get up from the couch to get a meal cooking. They connect you to your favorite restaurants in the city. Ordering's easy. Use the DoorDash app. Choose what you want to eat. A Dasher will bring it to you. 
anywhere you are. Not only that burger place you love, that might be on DoorDash and probably is, but over... Th- oh, Wendy's. You do you Wendy's. Wendy's oh, wow. Well, 310,000 other amazing restaurants are there too. They connect you door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities, all 50 states. And Canada, order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite chains, Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, which the Simmons family has stepped into multiple times, thanks to DoorDash, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash right now. Our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code BILL. $5 off your first order. Download the DoorDash app from your app store, the app store, any app store, and enter promo code BILL. Again, just do it. Uh, Since we're here, let's talk about Luminary, the podcast subscription service with some of the best content around including Rewatchables 1999, which is which is heading toward a finish. We only have four left. We also did Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999, which you can you can find um, in the in the luminary. All you do is search for Break Stuff. And we have a new one coming next month. Did we announce a new one yet? We did. Uh, did you? Oh, you, I mean, you teased nah, it. You I teased, teased it. it. It's it's about a basketball franchise that is was in the National Basketball Association and still is. That'll be my tease. Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows like the one that I just teased from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else. Trevor Noah. Um, there's there's a sex podcast. I'm not going to say the name, but it's a good one. Uh, Guy Raz has one. Fiasco about Trump's daughter. That one's, that one's there. There's a lot of good ones. The Luminary app, free to download. You can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one, whether you're into music, TV, film, comedy, sports, whatever. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more, like Rewatchables 99, only on Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash Simmons. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. Luminary.link slash Simmons. Two months of free access. Cancel anytime. Terms do apply. Let's talk about something you told me before we started this podcast. Yeah. This book's been out for how long? One week. And the actual hardcover is selling 70% as much as the audiobook. The audiobook. So right now, yeah, we are the number of audiobooks. So we did a special audiobook. This is super, this is super interesting. And it, we did a special audiobook where the audiobook is produced like a podcast. So you hear... I don't read someone's quote in the audio. I give you the tape and I, we have scoring. We've got a song from Janelle Monet, which is a theme song of the thing. And we use archival tape. And it's yeah. a, totally, it's like listening to 10 consecutive revisionist history podcasts. If you listen to the book, 10 chapters, 10. And what's happened is that the, so the book came out and I, and I said to somebody beforehand, because I was in England and uh, my English publisher said, you know, Jordan Peterson's book in England the audiobook outsells the physical book. And I was like, really? Because historically, the audiobook is like 10% of total sales. Yeah. But what was happening was that a generation, he has a lot of very, very young followers who experienced him online. And they were, for him, he, for them, they, he was a digital phenomenon. And so when he put out a book, they just, they want, they've been listening to him on YouTube or listening to his, they just want to listen to him. And so- what happened with me is I think the same thing has happened is that a whole universe of podcast listeners who tend to be much younger, who know me from revisionist history, not from my previous books, are just migrating over and getting the book. Like, oh, a book's come out. Oh, I'm going to listen to it. And now there's this weird thing where 
I'm not even sure, you know, five years from now, what percentage, how small would the percentage of physical books be? Is everyone going to be, is that going to be the primary way you consume some large number of, of authors? So I'm trying to process all this because I'm, I'm stunned that I would have expected a higher number, but not for it to beat the number. It may, And I think it goes back to what you said earlier about the Q&A and how your book tour changed. I think, mm-hmm. I think this whole decade has, has conditioned audiences to be used to a conversation, you know, and to yeah. be used to hearing yeah. the author speak or the host speak or that, that kind of intimacy and then listening to it when they're working out or when they're driving or when they're flying somewhere, commuting or whatever. And I, I just, I was in New York City and D.C., you know, last weekend. You just see everybody with the AirPods. Everywhere. Everybody. Yeah. It's like invasion of the body snatchers. All, the, you know, it's this would be the next around. invasion of the body snatchers where they just fix the AirPods and yeah. you become an alien. Yeah. Um, yeah. And guess what I didn't see? Anybody reading a book. Yeah. Well, it's changed. Hun- you, you, know, wa- you even walk down an airplane. It's like, it's used to see every person had a book. Now half the people are working or they're on the computer or they're just watching a movie. Or they have their headphones on. So it's super interesting because it's a balance of power from people who wrote well to people who talk well, right? So I always yeah. think about this when I listen to Ringer podcasts. You have a group of people. So give one random example. Mallory Rubin. Yeah. Mallory Rubin talks really, really well, right? She's a voice you want to listen to for whatever. We can break it down, but there's just something. Her personality comes through. She's incredibly compelling. 10 years ago, that would not have mattered, right? It, it, would have been a, it, would have been, it would have been, if you talked to her casually in the office, you would have been charmed by the conversation. But the fact that she had an incredible um, verbal presence was a stray fact. It was, unless she went on TV, but then TV is complicated too, because then you have to look the part as well as sound the part. Now with audio, all of a sudden people who have this particular weird, previously undervalued gift of being able to express themselves um, really well, but also the tone of their voice is a, a voice you want to spend time with. Right. That person is now suddenly elevated, right? The book contract Mallory could get today is 10x what it would have been. Oh, don't tell her that. She's going to leave. I know, yes. But Love that, Mallory. I find that fascinating. Like, this happened, Bill, this happened in like two years that everything flipped and a random group of people with compelling voices I suddenly think, went to the, to the head of the line. I think something else happened, though. Yeah. I think people have been listening to this stuff now, really since the middle of last decade, but they mm-hmm. have this whole 12, 13-year history of just listening to podcasts. And some people are listening to them at 1.25 speed. I've never done five speed, which yeah. I've done one, two. I can't do higher than that. I feel yeah. like it's like you just your, co- your ears did cocaine, basically, is the sensation. But I think they're just... By hearing constantly mm-hmm. everybody else's podcast, it makes somebody better at a podcast. They certain rhythms, they pick up certain tricks yeah. and things like that. And I, you know, you weren't learning anything from talk radio. No. You weren't gonna be listening to like your local shitheads on the drive time show, like you know, like the guys in Boston talking about we gotta pick between Mookie and J D. And yeah. like you're not getting better. You're not getting better professionally by listening to that. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're listening to podcasts that you really like and Barring certain things, I think that helps. But I, the 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 thought of an audio, of your audiobook outselling not the physical book, I would not have predicted. 
So does this? So mean- it seems it seems like this is now like, and and they do this every. I, it the serial thing bothers me when they were like, and when serial podcast took off, it's like podcasts had already taken off. Narrative podcast took off with serial, but podcasts had been around yeah. for a while, yeah. and doing really well. Trust me. Um, what's what's changed? I think right now when we talk about revolution steps, is could could this could audiobooks and podcasts replace books? Well, that's the question. So why ten years from now do I put out a physical book at all? Is it an after or or is it simply an afterthought? Do I do an audiobook and then someone sees it and says, Do you mind if I turn that into a physical physical book? And I'm like, Okay, sure. Or yeah. maybe it's like like Shay has a book coming out. Mm-hmm. And Shay's basketball book did really well, and this movie's book's going to do well. And one of the th- cool things he did with the book is there's a lot of illustrations, and it's just a fun book to read and interact with. It's not just traditional, Yeah, here's 400 yeah. pages of words. Yeah. So and that, okay, so there's a clear— So, like, if I ever did another ba- basketball book, I would, I, would do, I would make it a more fun book to read than just hear all these words. Yeah. Though and I maybe that's— If you redid Book of Basketball— and you broke up the top 100 into 10 segments of 10 players each. And it's 10, it's a 10 chapter audiobook. And you release the audiobook one chapter a week for 10 weeks and you charge $2 for each chapter. I mean, that's a really interesting proposition all of a sudden, right? Build up a sense of suspense about what's coming next. I mean, it's like you could do a kind of, it could be a kind of, uh, Should I get the ghostwriter? <laughs> no, but it also, I, it's a very I, I think di- about the books, the book ideas I have in my head that just sail away. I just watch them go. Like I could write a, a I feel like I could write a really good Kevin Durant book because I've spent time with them. Yeah. I think you could tell the story of the last 12 years of the league through him. Um, I think he's a fascinating guy. I think he's misunderstood in some ways. I think he's properly understood in other ways. Mm-hmm. And he'd be a really good book. Yeah. Um, I would never want to spend the time doing it. By the way, the thing that you didn't do in your, forgive me for returning, because I love Book to Basketball so much. And the, the thing you didn't do that you should have done, my one critique. Oh, your, there's more than one critique. No, this is, this is my big critique. All right. I don't other than splitting the book up into two books. <laughs> sure. Is you should have had one absolutely bananas choice. You should have put someone in the top 10 who no one in the history of basketball has ever put in the top 10. Like you needed to do, like you had controversy at the Just lower. to make sure people are paying attention. Just like, like pick somebody, make, give me, give me, make a case, a wholly implausible case for somebody to get me thinking about, like, so with a reason, right? So if you, if there's something about basketball players and you have ideas about this that you think is radically undervalued. Yeah. So pick, take a chemistry guy and put him in the top 10 and just say, you know what? This guy was the ultimate chemistry guy. I know his stats don't measure up. I would up. never besmirch the pyramid like that. <laughs> the pyramid was very carefully constructed. The thing is, we need the pyramid now more than ever because everyone gets in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Everybody. It's a ridiculous Hall of Fame. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Derrick Rose is probably getting in because oh. he won the MVP. He played, you know. Yeah, oh my God. It's yeah. ridiculous. Wait, we got to talk about- um, I had a Kanye thing I wanted to talk about. Kanye. So I've been experimenting with my podcast listening, trying to broaden it. And I was been listening to this podcast called Dissect. Yeah. Which is genius. It's a good one. In, in the best, nerdy in the absolute best possible way. It's about somebody, this guy, what's his name? Uh, he's a funny, Chris, no, uh, so the C, anyway. He does, the podcast is a guy, one guy who breaks down typically rap albums, um, but sometimes R&B albums. 
does Frank Ocean, he does Tyler the Creator, and he does Kanye in. So I was listening to the first episode, or maybe it was the second, in his Kanye um, uh, series. And he's talking about that moment in 2009, I think it is, when Kanye member interrupts uh, at the Grammys. He says, when uh, Taylor Swift is about to win, he says, you know, with all due respect, Beyonce had the greatest video of all time. And it's this big controversy. I had forgotten that Obama, call, among other people, called him a jackass after that. Um, and it was this huge moment in, the, in pop culture that Kanye stood up at the Grammys and dared to call into question the fact that they voted Taylor Swift over Beyonce, right? Now, what's fascinating with that, of course, is that <clears throat> the idea of a participant in a contest disputing the result in the world of sports is commonplace. Yeah. You and... Daryl Morey did it with <laughs> Harden and Westbrook. It's Complained like, about it. But no, in the game too, like yeah. the Rams-Saints game, like the, oh, the, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, playoffs, the like yeah. every single player speaks up after that. So, and what's interesting about that is that a football game is, the outcome of a football game is actually highly legitimate in a sense that the game goes on forever. You have a hundred chances to win. And the complaint, so we, but even then we allow someone to complain about one of those 100 outcomes if they don't, if they aren't entirely fair. Yeah. And we're fine with it. We're fine with the coach or the players popping off in far more blunt and, um, uh, and uncivil terms um, about the unfairness of the outcome. Kanye complains about the outcome of a totally absurdly rigged, illegitimate, like Grammy voting. Are you kidding me? Like, Grammy voting is like a bunch of, it's, I mean, I don't even know who votes for it. It's a people, did they even, half of them probably didn't even pay attention. It died to, when Toto won like five Grammys. Nobody <laughs> yeah. ever took them seriously again. Exactly, 1982, exactly. the death of the Grammys. So you have, you have a kind of preposterously, uh, uh, a preposterous election. And a guy stands up who is a legitimate player in the world of music and points out something that, by the way, is true. In retrospect, did... Beyonce deserved the Grammy over Taylor Swift. I think Swift. it was, I think people got upset because it was embarrassing to her and it was a young woman and people felt like it was not cool. First of all, Taylor Swift can take care of herself. Well, they, we didn't know that at the time. Oh, we just knew her as like I mean, a fact, young, up, a up and coming artist. people can take care of themselves more Well, now we know she, she's... No, but like, my point is like, in, every, in sports, it's fine. And the process is legitimate. In music... They act like it's it's they act like Moses it's came down yeah. and had the Grammys on stone tablets. And Kanye, how could Kanye <laughs> question Moses's like it's the whole thing? <laughs> and the fact that we got so upset at this that Obama, Obama felt compelled to weigh in and call Kanye a jackass. That was one thing that secondly, if you listen to the tape. Can I of, interject one thing? What, it would be funny to have a game show of Obama's worst interjections versus Trump yes. to try to figure out which is who. Because Trump totally would have intervened on Kanye versus Taylor Swift. He would have. That was a weird move for it's, Obama. Well, I think he He was, did have some weird ones over the eight years. Like he definitely was well, feeling himself music a few times. Very seriously. Yeah. I feel like he had to. And I don't know the context in which he weighed in. But. All right, go the, ahead for your second one. The tape itself, it's not like it's an outrageous. He actually. Comp, he says. He, he, I forgot the exact words he uses, but he, he says, you know, I respect your accomplishment, but I got to say, Beyonce's video was the best video of the last 10 years, whatever. It's not like he's saying, you know, fuck you, you don't deserve this, right. you know, white girl. Like, 
No, it's actually that would have been awesome. He's doing what any music <laughs> fan would, real music fan would do. But in the world of music, you're not allowed to be a music fan. Yeah, which I just think is that, bananas. What is wrong with the world of music where everyone acted like a, an atrocity had just been committed because Kanye dared to prefer legitimately Beyonce over Taylor Swift? What's and let's flip that around to a sports yeah. example. Yeah, Serena at the U.S. Open last year. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gets the penalty for being coached, which she was, which they caught on videotape of the coach coaching her. Yeah. And the ump nailed them on it. Now, whether that was her fault or not, and I don't think it was, and that's why she got upset. That's her coach, and he was coaching, and the guy saw it, and he nailed her. That's one penalty. Second penalty, she broke her racket on the court. Yeah. A point went the wrong way. She shattered her racket and then and then after that started berating the ump and was calling him a thief and all these things and then lost a game penalty in a match that, in my opinion, she would have lost anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it all swung Serena's way. And everybody's like, oh, man, it's so unfair. What happened to Serena? Yeah. It's like, what happened to her? She got coached and her coach got caught. She destroyed her racket and she called the umpire a thief. I don't know if I'm going with poor Serena yeah. on this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that story was somewhere in the middle, right? I think well, the umpire maybe what didn't handle it perfectly, but I'm airing. I much prefer a world where athletes ex athletes or music stars leg express their legitimate emotions and passions in the middle of these highly charged contexts. What I don't like is this sanctimonious air that people have that that treats sports contests like they are like it's a an election or like mm. it's. You know, it's the it's the it's the the cardinals meeting in the Vatican to choose the next pope, and how dare you question the, you know, the selection process? Since when? Since when are these these popular culture rituals sacred? They're not sacred, right? We, the world's a lot better place when people roll their eyes at a at a Grammy selection and say, "You guys screwed up," right? And and that's a, that, that's that's and the other actually the see so you you feel this way because the Jamaican. Um, sprint team has been cheating with steroids for the last like 20 years cheating. and you've just looked the other they way. Not been cheating. No, you've just looked the other way as it's been a steroid Wait, factory. I'm sorry, which uh, sprinter in the past <laughs> few months was uh, was a temporary oh, That is suspended? true. I'm Christian. kidding about the sprinter, the Jamaican not team, Jamaicans. by the way. Don't get mad at me. Not Jamaicans. Um, no, there was, what was it? It was a U.S. sprinter, right? Just Christian got Cole. caught. Christian Cole. Although it turns out it's a, it's a much more complicated case than it appears. He wasn't caught for cheating. He had a, you know, you're required to, you have, it was, a, it was a whereabouts violation, you know, because they, they, you know, you get tested as many as 50 times a year and they show up at all hours and you have to tell them where you are. And if you don't tell them where you are, then, but uh, basketball and football, they might want to take a page and tennis might want to take a page out basketball, of Basketball, what are you talking about? They throw those tests in the, in the garbage. No, I'm saying. They're, they're never, basketball's never having a PD case. Every field, once in a while, they, they get like right. some no-name. We do it right in track and field, and we test you, you know, once every couple days, and in the middle of the night, we'll come knocking on your door, and you, if you don't produce a urine sample right there, you're in trouble, right? That's I, the way it works at that level of. The only way there would be an NBA superstar PD scandal is if, the guy was being photographed by like an investigative team walking out of, you know, the, the pharmacy or whatever with a whole box that said <laughs> steroids in big letters. 
And it was like, pick a superstar. And, and it was just, and he's just walking, oh, I got my steroids. That's the only, Adam, even then, Adam Silver would be like, wow, we don't know what was uh, in the we box. We don't know. We don't know. I don't know. We can't judge. <laughs> Too much. The, we couldn't find the box. Nothing was in there. We'll never see an NBA player get, get this, caught. This reminds me of the basketball story I want to tell. Not Nothing to do with steroids, but having to do with um, the greatest basketball player of all. I had this really- Larry Bird? No. Oh. LeBron. I had this really interesting chat. <laughs> no. No, the- Current oh, okay. generation. I, Michael Jordan is the greatest. Yeah, ever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Don't um, don't don't be a LeBron truther on that. I had a chat with this guy who runs a company that it's one of those. Uh, it's, you have this little um, wristband, and the wristband collects. You know, it's called Whoop. It collects like forty bits of I've forgotten how many bits of physiological data. Yeah. And they crunch it. It's all sent to a server, and they crunch it, and they give you all your readouts. And they do all this work with athletes. And one of the things that it does is it tells you about your, it's really about your recovery. So it will say, after you've worked out, it'll say, and you wake up the next morning, it'll say, how much have you recovered from your exertion the day before? And why this is interesting is that you've had all these discussions with Rosillo and others I know about the 82-game NBA season. Is it too long? Which would be extinct soon. Yeah. So this is all about that number, right? That if you are day in, day out, not getting back into... The green, the green is, I've forgotten, I think it's 75% and above. If you're below 75% recovery, you are, or below 50% recovery, you are risking injury by continuing to exert yourself at a high level. So the guys who don't, and this is a very, very powerful predictor of your chances of getting injured, right? So if you're someone who does not bounce back to 75 or 80 on a nightly basis, you're heading into danger zone. So they were talking about LeBron, what was fascinating about LeBron is he said they've never seen anything like it. LeBron is a guy who can, right after his workout, he'll be in the 20s. And the next morning, he's like at 80. He just, the, and the argument was, it was really fascinating, that maybe one of the things that makes him so extraordinary as a kind of, as an athlete, is that not that his overall levels of performance are greater than his peers, but that he returns to something close to normal faster than everybody else. So that other guys, so if everybody was fully rested, LeBron's advantage over everyone else would be 5%. But on, in game 75, his advantage is 25% because he's at 85 and they're at 40, right? And then the second question is, well, how much of that is innate and how much of that is, this is what I ask, is, is that because LeBron's doing something different? And they said, yeah, that it does, some of it is innate, but some of it is LeBron has taken this question of recovery more seriously than his than his than his his peers in basketball. I love that. And so it was but, the 2011 finals when he they flipped it because he the Miami felt like he was tired during that finals yeah. when he sucked against Dallas. Yeah, and they put him on that minutes limit that next regular season and basically forced him to come out. He didn't want to come out and. They were, that was, I think, the first time a team was gearing somebody toward peaking toward. in the playoffs. But the, this notion is that you now have a way to precisely measure this. Yeah. And I think that when this, and this guy was suggesting that these tools are now infiltrating professional sports. And so, and if you game this out, what it's tools? really clear. What's that? <laughs> what tools are infiltrating professional sports? The tools of measuring someone's recovery. Oh, okay. Just yes. that, yes. that's yes. all we're talking that's about. All. Got it. Okay. So I think the question of whether basketball has an 82-game season or not is moot. That what you'll see in a couple of seasons is simply teams will manage their everyone's minutes 
according to these independent metrics, and no one's going to play 82 games, right? I, just, I'm going relevant? the other way. I think we're going to see teams driving their stars into the ground because they're going to be leaving anyway oh. and jumping to another team. Yeah, it's that. the Dallas Dallas Cowboys DeMarco Murray, right? Yeah, it was free agent year. It's like, hey, DeMarco, here's yeah. another 30 carries. You're leaving. Like in retrospect, if you think the guy might be leaving, like what do you care about preserving him? You know, yeah, unless you think you actually could win the title. Does this mean that the Raptors genuinely thought they had a shot of hanging on to to Kawhi after this? Well, I was going to mention this. The uh, I'm really fascinated to see what happens. There's a, ho- a whole bunch of shit going on behind the scenes right now in the NBA mm-hmm. with the tampering. And yeah. a, lot, a lot of it's been reported, but we're talking about uh, – own- owners or people that work for certain franchises really trying to crack down on tampering, like in crazy Mm -hmm. ways, like Mm -hmm. we get to check your phones, that kind of stuff. And Adam Silver is at, you know, he's at a point here where he could start morphing into David Stern if he's not careful. Wow. I know you feel, you know, I don't say that lightly. I know your feelings about David Stern. Well, I I, I think, I think, I think people are looking to him to solve this. Yeah. And the only way for him to solve this is to have more power. And what's more power? It's the tampering fines are ridiculous. You actually have people checking phones and stuff like that. But the thing is, like, let's say you owned a team. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I need to see your phone, Gladwell. Wouldn't you have, like, seven phones? Yeah. I don't, be like, I don't think checking you'd, the phone. You'd just be like, hey, Tommy, can you get another Apple 11 and then I'll just take it and pay the yeah. bill and then you're texting whoever from the thing. They can't stop what happened, but th- I think this, I won't say that there was something that happened this summer. Mm-hmm. I won't say I won't say the, uh, the teams, but a player went from one team to the other mm-hmm. and there's just a lot of smoke. And there's a lot of smoke that dates back a lot of months. And a lot of very clear, it's not, this isn't conspiracy bill. This is things that were brought up in certain meetings that made people go, wait a second. There's just a lot of smoke and they, what happened this summer Mm -hmm. cannot happen again. You cannot have. Which deal are you talking about? I'm not, I'm not saying which team, (laughs) but by the way, there is more than one team. I, I think. Multiple teams were the maddest. They yeah. probably we we had more mad teams this summer that felt like last season was actually compromised in some way for them mm-hmm. by players having one foot out the door. Yeah. Now, ironically, Kawhi won the title. Yeah, Wait, so he can't be blamed for that. But I refuse to feel sorry for the owners because although I realize that you need to do a rule change for this, but there's a very simple solution to this kind of player movement. Yeah, and that is owners need to give equity stakes in the franchises to their star players. Why not? Right? So if you're worried, if you're Toronto, you want to hang on to Kawhi, in a perfect universe, you should be able to say, Kawhi, we'll pay you your normal amount under the cap, right, that you're asking for. But there should be a rule that says, if you want, if you're an owner and you want to give a player, I don't know, actually, it's not legal, I'm guessing now, to do that. It should be. You should be able to say to Kawhi, We'll give you 1% of the franchise. They try to do only, with Magic Johnson. But only if you stay. And by the way, if you stay two years, you get 2%. If you stay three years, you get 3%. Why not? Does Kawhi increase the, is that a good deal for the owner? Absolutely. Does it introduce a really positive trend in ownership? Totally does. The idea that players don't have equity stakes in franchises makes no sense whatsoever. 
I w- what I would like to see is a, and I've been thinking about this for startups as well. The partnership, the law firm partnership model is a really, really useful one. So imagine if you had a franchise in which the starters on the team are the partners. They all own a piece of the franchise. If they get, you know, the, the, if you leave the team, the team buys back your seat, right? On the, the same way if you're a partner and you retire. So it's retire, like a seat license. It's a seat license. If you're a partner and you retire, they buy you out, right? They get, you get a lump sum upon leaving and your share of the franchise. No, they don't. So you give, imagine if you said as a general rule in the NBA that 25% of the franchise, the equity in the franchise, needs to be um, held in partnership by the starters on the basketball team. It's a super interesting way of, and by the way, you don't have to do it. You could do it if you want to do it. What if it, What if they made a rule that the franchise could invest in the player's budding multimedia <laughs> empire? Because they knew, all have one now. I knew you were going there. No, I they, knew you were going they all have. They all have their own empire now, and it could be that could be part of it. It's but like why make you it have covered? a salary, but then you also it's a ten million dollar investment. Why make in it in the covered? Kevin Durant whatever the KD thirty five? But imagine so we pass this rule, and I'll, so I'm Dan Gilbert, and I say, oh, I have a way to make the Cavaliers the number one destination for every star player. Win the lottery for the sixth time in thirty <laughs> years? Is that it? No, no. I'm oh. setting aside my franchises. What's what are the Cavs worth? A billion? A lot less. Oh, come on. They get a billion for it. These days? I think 800 okay. to 900 is probably okay. the high number Gilbert right says, now for a low team. I'm going to set aside uh, a $200 million equity stake in my franchise to my five starters. And so each starter will have a partnership that is worth hold on, $40 million. They would never do this. I know. Well, but no, they would do that if they thought that would... If, if, would you, if you're Dan Gilbert and you thought that by doing that, you could attract five of the biggest stars in the game to come to Cleveland, would you do it? Yes, you would do it. You're talking about a group of rich guys that are always convinced they're smarter than everybody else. They'll just be like, I'll just find the next whoever. Tillman Frittata, the the Houston owner, Mm -hmm. he released a book this week called Shut Up and Listen. (laughs) (laughs) That's the actual title of the book. It's his advice for business and life. This guy owns an NBA team. That's so fantastic. Shut up and listen. That's so fantastic. These are these guys, these owners, they all, they're not, they feel like they don't need the players. That's what's so frustrating, I think, to them about this is like the players have flipped the dynamic on them. Yeah. It's one of those rare things where kind of everybody's unhappy except, I think, people in their 20s who love NBA players who think this yeah. is great, that it's just musical chairs. This, I was, was telling you earlier that I was in love with uh, Ramona Shelburne's uh, oh, the Sterling podcast thing. on Sterling. And one of those episodes is really the, the one that goes into Sterling's past as a landlord in LA. That points out that two se- on two separate occasions, um, he had to settle cases brought by the Department of Justice where he was discri- accused credibly and of... Uh, of discriminating against African-Americans. And this happens, and he's settling these cases for systematic discri- housing discrimination against black people, and he's the owner of a you know, sports franchise largely played by African-Americans. And yeah. what happens? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. But 20 years later- I used to call him the racist slumlord in my column. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. This is like in yeah. the 2000s. Yeah. But somehow- a taped phone call with his girlfriend when he objects to her putting an Instagram picture with Magic Johnson, that's going to bring him down, right? And there's a wonderful moment. I think it's Matt Barnes. Of course, it's Matt Barnes in the, in the podcast. He's like, why does the, like, why does the stray comment to his girlfriend bring him down when we knew the dude was systematically 
discriminating against black people. And that was like fine with the yeah. NBA. And what I, what I, this, so question number one is why Also, is he it, heckled Baron Davis, who was on his own team. On his own team. From courtside. No, but there's an interesting distinction. And I get into this actually in my book, that the distinction between the, the institutionalized racism is the kind of stuff that somehow we're oblivious to, but the personal stuff is the stuff that we flip out about. Personal conduct, if it seems a little bit, you know, off color or, or disreputable, we go nuts and we drive the guy out of the league. But the guy was systematically discriminated against black people. Right. And nobody. It's hard to do explain. League. It's just that kind of contradiction. And it, the second thing I would say is. The, because that, I think that the actual audio yeah. of hearing his voice say this stuff is just easier for people to understand. It's like, it's, this is the same thing that came up with Ray Rice. Ray Rice goes to the NFL and I'm going to get fired from the ringer. You're going to get fired from the ringer. I'm going to fire so myself. So he can say, we all know he hit his girlfriend yeah. really hard. Because he I, was dragging her out of the elevator. Yeah, it was the assumption. Yeah. We're fine with that. Like, all right, just take a couple of games off. Right. And then we see the video which shows, oh, we, he hit by his the girlfriend way, we, really hard. We weren't fine with that because the suspension was too low, which was one of the reasons that became such a big thing yeah. that summer. But it didn't, the... We had a description of an activity which generated X amount of controversy. And then when we had a picture of the activity which confirmed exactly what we were told before, yeah. we freaked out, right? That's this, and it's a, it's a similar version of that somehow the existence of a tape with Donald Sterling is a scandal off the charts, but, you know, documented evidence that he runs a business which discriminates against African-Americans is something that, you know, where was David Stern? He was like, it just kind of like, it was considered to be an irrelevant fact. But my, my question is why, so when you, when, you, when you fast forward to the present day and you look back on the lessons of the Donald Sterling um, affair, the lesson is not that Donald Sterling is a bad apple. The lesson is there's something fundamentally wrong with a league where a handful of billionaires are quote unquote owning these teams. They couldn't, the they couldn't figure out how to get rid of them. Yeah. Well, I would talk to people about this who work for the league and yeah. they were like, we, he's got to do something first. It was, a, it was almost like going back to your book. Like they're just doing the random stops, hoping this will be the day they stop his car and he'll have a gun in it. Ultimately, once you buy a team, that's it. You own the team and that, you can't get rid of the person. What's up? But there was a way which we figured out with the second final Donald Sterling the thing that brought him down ultimately was the decision by both the players and the advertisers to say enough is enough, right? But ultimately, he didn't have to sell. He didn't, but it was- He got an awesome price and there was a bidding war and he had Russ Caruso and he had uh, players, Balmer and one ultimately of Ultimately, the, they weren't going to play. I don't believe that. Do you not believe that? Because the way, they, you know, they you know, I think one of the great missed opportunities this decade was them not playing in that playoff game. And I did count down that day. And oh, we, think we thought there was a chance the Clippers weren't going to play. And then they came out and just threw their warm-ups in midcourt and got blown out. They should have not. I wish if we did that over again, yeah. I think that would have been such a cool moment if they were like, now, actually, we're not playing. Because yeah. now what happens? Well, Now they ha now you're pushing. You all the power. Now you yeah. have all the power. It was yeah. a huge missed opportunity. By the way, you they know, had some smart people on that team. You know who? You know the hero of that podcast? I love the podcast so much. The hero is Doc Rivers. Right. He's great in those situations. Everything, whatever problems you had about Doug Rivers in the past, go out the window when he like comes across as like thoughtful. Well, he was awesome during that whole stretch. He, he, was, he was. Have you revised your 
You, you, I like you, Doc. Hmm. I have two Sterling things. Yeah. These are both real estate things that explain how he treated yeah. the Clippers. Yeah. He had a, he has a building and he might still have it on, uh, I think it's on Wilshire in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And it's like a 10 or 11 story building. He's the whole Wilshire corridor. He has, he's the only office in the building, or at least this was the case five years ago when he owned yeah. the team. These are all stories people told me five years ago. Yeah. So whether they're true or not, I don't, but now I don't know. But he didn't have anyone else in the building, didn't rent out any of the other offices because he didn't like riding the elevator with anybody else. They didn't know. <laughs> so he had a 12, 10, 11, 12 yeah. story building and it was just him in the office. That was yeah. it. The other thing is in Malibu on, on PCH, yeah. if, for people listening, like Malibu is, it's on the ocean. There's one way in, one way out. It's this long highway yeah. and there's houses on the, on the ocean and a bunch of stores. And there's this one part about like when you're driving down maybe like 20 minutes from Santa Monica Pier that has Demori's Pizza and it's got this little shopping center. And if you look across the street, it's maybe a four house lot that's just empty. Mm -hmm. Nothing's there. Sterling owns it and doesn't do anything with it. Just sitting on it. It's just empty. And he kind of likes it. It's He doesn't like selling stuff, but he likes holding things. Yeah. Which is how he treated the Clippers. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, here's this team. I'm just glad I have it. I don't care what happens to it. And then he would go to the games dressed in all black with his arms folded, like yelling at Baron Davis. Like he is the weirdest person who has ever passed through the also, National Basketball would, Association. Why would you yell at Baron Davis? Of all the people to yell at. Well, he was pretty heavy that year. Yeah, I was I was yelling at Baron Davis from the sixth row. Have a salad, Baron. I have a I think I did I ever tell I think I told my Baron Davis story. What's that one? I was in a hotel in Chicago, in the lobby, and I look out of the corner of my eye and I see four very tall people come in, Baron and Matt Barnes. Oh yeah, you've told this story. Tell it again though. <laughs> and then Baron Davis spots me and he goes, Yo, you the tipping point? And they were reading Tipping Point in their book group. It's so fantastic oh. on so many levels that they had <laughs> the idea. It was like the 07 Warriors, right? <laughs> they had a book club. <laughs> they had a book club and they were reading my book. I love Baron Davis so much. That was like, but it did cement. When I heard about Matt Barnes on the podcast, I was reminded, I think, I don't know anything about Matt Barnes, but he strikes me as deeply, deeply interesting and cool. Am I wrong? Yeah, I've always thought he had... Um, media potential. He's done, he's dabbled in some, but I'd be interested to see if he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah. He, he was, could go up a notch. That was, that was like in the, you know, in my entire life, that's like a top, for Baron Davis to shout across the crowded lobby, yo, right. you the tipping point is just like the best thing ever. You know, I did the NBA draft diary for Blake Griffin's draft. Uh -huh. He was the first pick uh -huh. and it had like goals or whatever. They would run these graphics and his goal was to host Saturday Night Live. Uh-huh. And I made this joke in the diary. I was like, oh, yeah, the odds of that are 10,001. Meanwhile. He was on the Alec Baldwin roast last week, and he was, like, great. Yeah. Like, he's really, he has really good delivery. His jokes were good. I'm like, that might actually happen. That would be amazing if that was in the NBA draft just that year that his goal was to host Saturday Live, and he actually might be a Saturday you Live host. Watch, you watch the Alec Baldwin roast? No, I saw that part. Oh, I see. They, part of it was online. I'm going to watch it, though. I, I still love Roast. It's one of the last places yet where left where anything goes. It's really it. It's just Roast. It's the only place it's you like can make Jeff, jokes anymore. It's like Jeff Ross. and He will be doing this until he's like 90 years old. Oh, my. We, 
I know him. We make fun of him constantly about that. Because yeah. in like 06, he was claiming he was done with Rose. And now it's like, you can't have one without him. I think we covered everything. Didn't we? We had everything. Um, where are you going next? Uh, I am going to Northern California, uh, where I will do more uh, endless events. And You'll sneak in a couple of rich guy events. Uh, it's possible. Tommy, what are the odds? <laughs> Gladwell sneaks in some rich guy events. No, that's not true. I'm all about the people. On, um, on You're this. like the LeBron of rich guy events. It's like <laughs> LeBron's played 56,000 minutes. You've done 56,000 minutes of rich guy events. Just you I, and seven CEOs having tuna fish that, at 11 in the morning. So it's all it's completely unfair. Uh, it's completely unfair. <laughs> uh, this is good. Read the book. It's called Talking to Strangers. Thanks for coming on, Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you, Bill. All right. Thanks to Gladwell. I can't wait for Thursday. Million dollar picks, Mallory's most intriguing, and a surprise guest. You guys aren't going to guess this one, I promise you. Uh, thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Malcolm Gladwell. Thanks to Square. Square is more than a little white credit card reader. It's a whole system of tools built to run and grow any kind of business from point of sale and payroll to invoices and online stores. Go to Square.com slash go slash BS to see all the ways you can take your business from Square One to whatever's next. Kyle. Thursday, House and I are starting a new segment called Kyle's Corner. Get out. You have to tell a story about your life at the end of the podcast. Oh, man. Yeah, right. Kyle's Corner. That's coming Thursday until then.